Hello and welcome to the Inheritance Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. I'm a family office advisor and I've always been interested in what people do with their money and how that money in a turn affects them. Today I'm very pleased to have Chip Fisher, CEO of Fisher Wallace Laboratories and head of Ursus Advisory, a peer-to-peer consultancy for young adults with inherited wealth. Chip is an inheritor himself and also an accomplished entrepreneur and philanthropist. As I mentioned, he's currently CEO of his third company, Fisher Wallace Laboratories, which makes medical devices, but he has also branched out into private consulting to counsel inheritors based on his own experience. Chip's father was Avery Fisher, founder of Fisher Electronics, which was a major mid-century high-fidelity electronics firm and builder of the famous Fisher 400 for you audiophiles out there. He was also the former namesake of the famous Avery Fisher Hall, home of the New York Philharmonic at Lincoln Center, beloved by many generations of New Yorkers. When Chip was 21, he received an inheritance, which was a joy, but also a great challenge. And that is the basis for our story today. I hope you enjoy my interview with Chip Fisher. So anyway, let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your grandparents. Sure. My grandparents came from Kiev in the turn of the century. They left because of the pogroms at the time. Around 1905, my grandfather, his father had been a soldier in the Tsar's army in the late 19th century. And as a result of his service, had been given the chance to live outside of the ghetto. So they had a leg up financially and socially. And then my grandfather was born into that, had the ability to rise into the middle or upper middle class, and was, when he left at the time, with five children and a sixth on the way, basically running the equivalent of Brooks Brothers, a large department store in Kiev. And he had a great job, and they were settled and very much integrated at the high end of, of the Jewish community. They left very suddenly, came over here, obviously struggled most of their lives. But my grandfather managed to get a foothold, start a business which lasted into the Depression and then collapsed, unfortunately, like many at the time, running a clothing emporium. And and my father was born in 1906. He was the last of six children, the only one born here, which made him a little bit different and did not bring with him any taste of the old world. He was very much the American amongst his siblings who had grown up overseas spoke Ukrainian? Spoke He spoke, well, they spoke Russian and Russian. Ukrainian, and he only spoke English. I think that they spoke two or three languages at home, but he didn't maintain it, and as his sisters had and brothers. And then he grew up in Upper Manhattan and went to NYU and then worked in the advertising business and the book business. He was a book designer for Dodd Mead and Company and had, was very talented and did some, he designed the books for the American edition of Churchill's History of the English-Speaking Peoples and other books. He did all of Edwin Wade Teal's books, The Naturalist. He designed those, and he won a number of awards. But he, what he was really interested in was his hobby, which was high fidelity. And so he started his hi-fi and stereo business in 1937 and then grew it and then turned into a large business, which he sold in 1969. So that's a very short narrative of the early history of, of my family. And then I was born in 1956. I'm 66 now and uh, was born more towards the end of his career. How do you think your father transitioned from his life previous to the sale of the business to afterwards? How do you think he reconstituted himself? I think he struggled with not having the responsibility of a large company to run. And I don't think that he really thought about having a second act. I think many people 
back then, men and women who exited from very important positions didn't have the second act figured out as they left. It's still a problem today, I think, and many books are being written about that. And I've read a number of them, like David Brooks wrote one recently. And it's very, it's a real challenge. It was a real challenge for him. And I saw him struggle in terms of trying to find something to fill his days in doing something meaningful. He was on a number of boards and would, and they, my parents did a bit of traveling, but he was always very engaged, but restless. And I don't think he really had a great transition to something else which would have carried him for the last, say, 10 or 15 years of his life. So what did he transition into? Did he think well, of himself as a philanthropist? Did he think of himself as a yes. business advisor? No, he was really a philanthropist. And he was very, he was, to his great credit, he was very deeply involved with Lincoln Center, certainly in the mid-70s, with the transformation of Avery Fisher Hall and its reconstruction which is an interesting story in itself. And that lasted until the late 70s. So the first six or seven years of his full retirement, he was very engaged, but not as much after that. I don't think he really thought of something that would really uniquely challenge him after that project was over, unfortunately, or he didn't find something that he found thoroughly engaging, which is tough. And he also didn't, and this is not meant to throw shade, he didn't have a lot of hobbies. And I learned from that because in order to live a full life, no matter what your economic circumstances, you have to have sort of your own third world of interests. It doesn't matter what you do. You can have a broad number of interests, you can have a narrow number of interests, but whatever the package is, you have to stay engaged in improving your knowledge of the world and also doing things that are relaxing and engage your mind in different ways, whether it's puzzles, or playing bridge, or backgammon, or riding horses, or having hobbies that, that engage you and also have, at a certain point, or not solitary, but have a social component to them. Did he talk to you about the business? Was there any particular reason for the sale? Did he talk to you about business in general? He did. He was very about talking to me, and I was very inquisitive. I really wanted to know why he was selling the company and why and what was happening along the way. By the time I was about 10 or 12 years old, I started to ask questions. What happened to the company was that he was producing a very high quality product. And that was all great until Japanese and Taiwanese manufacturing started to become ascendant, which was really the early 60s. By that time, their economies had really started to boom and they were able to produce products very reasonably. And he did a lot of overseas manufacturing as well later on. Some of the manufacturing stayed in the United States and some of it went overseas. But what he discovered, the turning point of selling his company actually happened in 1964-65. At that time, there was a transition between transistors, between tubes and transistor. Tubes take up a lot more real estate in the chassis of an amplifier or tuner as than transistors. And so he had produced for a very popular model, thousands of chassis for the tube version, which had a ton, much more real estate left over when he put transistors in. So what he did in one very popular set, which changed from tubes to transistors, is there had been these wires in one section of, of the chassis, which were no longer needed. But to fill the space, he kept the wires in, but they didn't connect to anything. An overseas manufacturer copied his set in every single detail, including, because they didn't know why they should eliminate it, 
the fake wires that were in the back of this chassis. And when he saw that, he knew it was time to get out. And he basically hired a deal company. It was actually Donaldson, Lovkin, and Jenrette. Mm-hmm. It was one of their first deals, and he hired them to sell the company, which took another three or four years to find the right buyer. In that time, fortunately, the built business was expanding and doing better and better every year. And that was a period of time in the late 1960s when companies were creating divisions and using their cash flow to acquire other businesses, not always in their industry, but things that they felt they could grow and manage. And so he was acquired by, by Emerson Electric in St. Louis in 1969. So the timing was great. And fortunately, he got out in time because the year after the economy fell apart and there were price and wage freezes, it was, he would have had to stick things out well into the 70s in order to recover where he was in the late 60s. Did he ever think about starting another company? He never thought about starting another company. I think he'd had it. He'd really, he was 66 at the time and he worked seven days a week. And he just said, I, I, I did well. I had a great time. I've given chunk of money away, very satisfied, and really was not interested in doing anything in business. Did your parents talk to you about the family's wealth? They didn't talk to me about it directly. I knew when he sold the company because what had come into the family, because a friend of mine in camp showed me the New York Times (laughs) and showed me the figure of what this company was sold for. So that was my education when I was at summer camp, actually. And they knew that I knew, and that was pretty much it. So it's not like today where people, young people, will see what their parents' house is worth on Zillow and read about them in the newspaper, online, et cetera, et cetera. There was much less exposure back then, but but I knew what was coming down the pike. I just didn't know quite how that would affect me over time and when. Was there a change in lifestyle? No, there, there were absolutely none. The only thing was they bought a house in northwestern Connecticut and a rather modest one to have a country place because my father's assets had been tied up in the company until then. And so that was very refreshing for him because he enjoyed being in the country and getting out of the city, as did my mother. But that was the only extravagance. He, didn't, he did buy a sports car, but he bought a Jaguar in the worst year of production in 1971 when things were completely falling apart and the car joe had so many problems that he returned it six weeks later it was unbelievable i felt so sorry for him because he was so excited to get this and then and then the wheels came off 15 minutes later so that was the end of his experimentation in trying to treat himself that was it. I'm, I'm laughing. I had an early 70s Jag. You and did. it was the most unbelievable car I've ever had in my life. I remember <laughs> that the windshield wipers would stop working uh, in the middle of a storm. I didn't have to worry about that. It would not start in the rain. <laughs> so right. that's the only time he treated. So the answer is, it really didn't, he really didn't change his lifestyle. It was very comfortable. We lived a very nice, quiet, upper middle class existence in Manhattan, in, in essence. And which was really very comforting to me, because I think if it had changed them dramatically, it would have had a very different effect on me. And they traveled nicely and comfortably, but always, always somewhat modestly. And I rather admired that about them. And that's something that I've always tried to teach my children to be able to enjoy themselves at a reasonable level of comfort, because anything above that is nice, but not essential. Were there ways that you felt different from the other folks that you grew up with, from your peers, or was it? did you more fit in? I fit in for the most part, and I tended to 
spend time with my friends regardless of their financial position. A lot of the friends that I had in, they did, would say in college, I had the advantage of being able to do things that were a little bit more extravagant than what the average student did because I had friends who had a bit of money, which we never talked about, but quietly we knew. But our extravagances were nothing compared to the kind of things that I see go on today with children of wealthy people. And not, and I don't say that in judgment, it's just a very different time. We had very modest luxuries. We would go to a nice restaurant or we'd rent a car and go somewhere, but we didn't do anything really extravagant. And most of my friends were, were very cautious about money, actually. They enjoyed it, but in small increments. What were your parents' expectations for you? My parents' expectations were that I would work hard, find something to do it well, and that I would also follow them in terms of doing good things for other people and being involved in philanthropy. And I started at a very young age, sitting on boards. I was a founding board member of City Harvest, which collects surplus food, which is now a large agency. I started that. I didn't start it. I was on the board literally within the first 18 months, so essentially a founding board member. And I was involved with the Street Tree Consortium in New York, which deals with street trees and their maintenance, which was very interesting. And I now, as a hobby, prune trees upstate voraciously, I must say. It's really a great passion of mine. I find being in the outdoors and sculpting trees to be very therapeutic. And I've been involved with the Avery Fisher Artists Award Program, which my father started, which will be 50 years old in 2024 next year. And that's been delightful because we discuss the careers of these emerging artists and see who's worthy of being recognized. And it's a very interesting process. It's very quiet and private. And then we announce between three and five winners every year who are all extraordinary emerging artists. And it's really, it's really, there's a money prize, but it's really more the honor of being recognized in this fashion. And then they also have a Lifetime Achievement Award for the Every Fisher Prize, which is for someone who's really well along in their career, who's usually 35 to 50 years old and has had a very strong career in music. What did you study at school? I was an English major and I really enjoyed. Yes, and he'd been an English major. And my partner who runs our company, he was an English major. And my partner who runs our company is also an English major. I think writing is, uh, obviously you want to know something about the business that you're going into, but in the business that we're in now that I own with my partner and others is something where we've, we understand what we're doing, but we have hired other people who are experts in developing the company to assist us in moving the company to the next stage, which has been an interesting process. But I think being able to write and to communicate well in business is a very vital skill. It's not something that everybody does well, but it's something that I always admire when someone can present a thesis or an idea in a deck or in a description of a product. And so that's something that, that I think is a very valuable skill in business. But I always was very interested in business. My father actually wanted me to be a doctor. And when he visited me after freshman parents weekend and I told him I wasn't going to be a doctor, he was very disappointed. He felt that the commercial world was beneath me. And I said, it's not. And I'm just as scrappy as you are. And I really want to do something. Did you feel like you were in the shadow of your father? Have you reconciled that? I have reconciled it. I think I'm a very different person. I'm very proud of his achievements. 
I think that the family has a wonderful legacy. I always admired what he did, and I wasn't necessarily trying to duplicate it. I came to a point of comfort where I realized I had to make my own statement, no matter how small or large, and to be my own man. Clearly, living in the same city where his name is very prominent has been a challenge here and there. But, and it was more of a challenge, I think, when he was alive. And he died when I was 37, so I was quite young when he passed. In my 20s and early 30s, it was still a little bit of a challenge. But I think the pressure was really more self-induced than anything else. It wasn't pressure that he put on me. And I started companies very early in my sort of mid-20s. And I was very ambitious to just do my own thing in areas that were of interest to me. But also to be cultured and to have... And I had, I guess I would say I had the luxury of being, of having a broader life than he did at that age, because I wasn't, was hustling, but not quite perhaps at the same levelist pace that he had been. I enjoyed the fact that I could range broadly and have other interests in the arts and sports and reading and to doing things that were more on the cultural side, which is one of the reasons that New York is so great for me, because I can do all of the things that are well represented here and have done them over over the last couple of decades. So I've always stayed engaged in that way. And that's something that distinguishes me from what he experienced. And obviously, he didn't really have the time to do the things that I had the luxury to do. And I'm grateful for that. But that was that's what distinguished us. Do you think of yourself as wealthy? I think of myself as being very comfortable. I think in this day and age, there are so many different levels of wealth that it's hard to know where you fit in. I think if you have your basic needs met and you live within your means, which I do, then then you're doing well, not putting excessive pressure on yourself, other than to try to continue to achieve things within a certain range and not to take excessive risks that might completely change your lifestyle, which I've never done. So I've always been, one of the things he taught me was that you even in good times, you have to be cautious and studied about what's happening. You can't start being trigger happy about investing or in starting new companies that you don't really know a lot about or that you're not willing to commit a lot of time to learning. So I've always had a sense of caution at the end of the day that was instilled in me by him. And also the great thing, although I get teased for it once in a while, is that I'm thrifty because he grew up during the depression and came of age during the depression and couldn't get a job and then was fighting all sorts of other forces. We were working against him early on and had a very tough go of it. So I think he developed a very thick skin and was very cautious about money and making it and trying to survive, which I think was something that he passed on to me. But I think it's a good thing because things can change very quickly. We've seen the world recently come undone in many ways and in ways that we didn't expect. And so I think if you're going to play the long game, you have to live your life at a certain pace and you have to be studied. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't take risks. You absolutely should, because otherwise it's boring. But you have to do it within a certain range. So I would say, in answer to that, I've always felt that I was comfortable. In broader terms, yes, someone from the outside would say that I was wealthy. But there are so many different levels of living and spending now that didn't exist, say, 20 or 30 years ago, different tiers that I'm not in. I have friends who are in these very high tiers, but I'm not a part of that world, nor do I really choose to be. But I'm not envious. I'm very proud of my friends who are self-made, who've worked enormously hard. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that world? 
I don't, the things that I really like doing, Joe, for the most part, aside from a certain level of physical comfort, are, are not expensive pursuits. I spend a lot of my time reading and doing things outdoors, playing sports. Some of them can be expensive, like horseback riding, but not excessively. <clears throat> so the answer is, I don't really, I made a switch in sort of my 30s or 40s where the things that I was interested in, not because they didn't cost anything, but I just really discovered that the things that I really liked were intellectual pursuits and physical pursuits that didn't require large layouts. And so I don't really have to, I never felt I had to raise my lifestyle because that would not have affected the things that I really enjoyed most. Spending time with friends, being part of organizations, doing good work, and uh, being, being part of and observing the world at large. Has your wealth and position ever caused you any awkwardness in your relationships? I think my position caused some uncomfortable moments with friends early on when I was in my 20s, when I was living at a more comfortable level than most of my friends. I think it was slightly awkward, but not wholly awkward, because I was very cautious about what I spoke to them about. And if it was someone who was an economic peer, I would share information with them. And if it wasn't, then I would always try to live and act at a certain level with my friends who had lesser means. And then I would enjoy the things that they could afford to enjoy rather than to raise the bar to the point where they were uncomfortable. So how would you with, navigate that? It's as simple as going to, when I went out to restaurants with friends, I would let them choose the price level rather than going to an expensive restaurant. I wouldn't suggest something that I felt was out of their means. If I traveled with someone, as I did right after college, with a friend of mine who has since become very successful, we traveled at his economic pace. And we had a great time. We stayed in simpler places, but we were young and I just didn't care. I would, I preferred to be, to enjoy someone's company in a, in a time and place where they were comfortable with the pace rather than my own, knowing full well that I could experience whatever I wanted to experience later on privately without having to put pressure on them financially. And I think that's a very important thing. And I think young people who inherit money now really have to be very conscious of that. And negotiating that is, is not easy because many times you want to be with people who are of good character, whom you enjoy, but there is that economic separation. And it's a question of, do you pay for things? Do you do things at someone else's level or you, do you just set the bar? So we talked about this a little before, but did you feel that money was important at Harvard back in the 70s? I think there was a certain way that people behaved who had money that I knew. They were very quiet about it. You knew who they were, but they were very, they weren't flashy. And I always admired them for driving around in beat up station wagons and just never talking about it. The only time I experienced, I realized where a classmate of mine had come from was when I went down to his family's estate in Georgia, which was three or 4,000 acres with a large manor house. And we stayed there for a week. And it was quite an extraordinary experience. I'd never really, I knew the background that he came from, but it wasn't evident to me in any public way until I had this private experience. So I very much admired the way he lived and the way his family lived, very well and elegantly, but very quietly. And I think that's not always the case these days, that people have to show what they're worth more often now than they used to. So it's a very different world. 
from what I grew up in. Do you think the meritocratic experiment at Harvard was successful? I do to a great extent, yes. And I think that the school is better for it. And as long as they can continue to support it, that's great. I think the conversation of legacy admissions, for example, if that's what you're asking about, is a very challenging one. I do think that if an institution can support itself without doing, that's fine. It's not the greatest thing in the world for people who went there. But perhaps in this day and age, that's not necessarily going to be expected by anyone. And maybe there's a trend away from that, that the schools have a way of, they have, they have a way of negotiating the exit from that strategy. And they have another strategy for being able to keep these schools whole. I'm not sure what it is because I'm not in the fundraising business, but there seems to be a solution there. So I do admire the fact that there's an enormous meritocracy there in other schools and that there are kids from all over the world who are coming to study who would otherwise not have the chance to study at a place like that. Did anyone teach you to handle money when you were younger? Not really. I learned how to invest myself, basically. I was self-taught. I had friends who were in the investment business, and I sought very good advice. So rather than trying to do everything myself, I sought, as I do now, very good advisors, basically, who are in these fields with very specific visions who have long-term goals. And so that's been very positive. What's been your experience with working with advisors over the years? How do you find a good advisor? How do you know you've got a good one? It's a challenge. You have to really keep your ear to the ground and talk to a lot of people and see how people's investment strategies pan out over time, what their experience has been, how seasoned they are, what their perspective is. It's quite something. The question process is very challenging, especially for an individual investor. But I've been lucky to be in a world where I have a lot of friends who are either in the investment management business or have taught me things that I didn't know, which have given me great confidence in terms of being able to make decisions on who to hire. But it is a challenging process. How do you think about giving money to your children? How do you think about educating them for that? I think it's important. I think that the first thing you have to do is really train your children to have good values to respect money, to understand its origins, where it's come from, how it was made, how it was managed, and the fact that it can, with poor management or high spending, disappear very quickly and not reappear again. And so I think a certain level of, a certain reasonable level of thrift and paranoia is not a bad thing. There are pressures against young people who inherit money in terms of pushing them to spend faster than they used to because there's so many options for doing so, whether it's dining out, travel, acquiring cars, the whole clothing and accessory kind of adult toy business, meaning I'm talking about blenders and not, I'm talking about normal things that that adults would buy that they fill their houses with, that those, that there's just an endless stream of products. You don't think Vitamix is a good investment? It is. There's an example where if you buy something, I think the biggest lesson that I've taught my sons is there's nothing wrong with buying great things, but you want to buy things of value that will last. A pair of shoes that'll last 20 or 30 years, which are beautifully designed and beautifully built. And so you pay a lot more for them because they're going to last. Something like that. There are many different examples. And so if you surround yourself with fewer things of greater quality, your life will be better, that you appreciate what you have. 
So your father was deeply involved in Lincoln Center, and I'm sure many folks listening to this will remember his name on the Philharmonic Hall, Avery Fisher Hall, which was changed a few years ago during renovations. What was that process like? Yes, it was agreed to in principle that it would be in perpetuity, actually. That was in writing. And then it really was a matter of whether the heirs would agree to change the name, which we almost immediately agreed to do because we felt that a naming opportunity would be the only, the only way to, for them to move forward. We were not in a position to write the check to renovate the hall. It was a very large number. And so the only way to kickstart that was to, to relinquish the naming rights. So I think Lincoln Center came along, we did the right thing, in our opinion, and that was the end of it. And so it was the end of the discussion. But at the end of the day, we, we exited very amicably and very quickly. And then the hall was renamed, a gift was made, and they also raised a good deal more money to finish the renovation. So I think our move was very positive. I don't see it as a controversy, personally, and I think that everything went pretty smoothly. Actually. So what do you think your father's legacy is? At this point, I think, Joe, that his legacy is still the Fisher Prize and the Fisher Artist Program. We're giving, there's still that endowment that was separate and that's grown over the years. And we have the ability to give substantial prizes to young musicians every year and to recognize them for their achievements and their hard work. So I think that, I think his legacy is still very much alive. So let's talk about what you're doing now and how you transitioned into this. I started Ursus Advisory because I'd always been thinking about ways to help young people with inherited wealth, especially because I really didn't get any advice from my peers or anyone else when I was starting out. I've read a few books on the subject, and we've, you and I have discussed a number of them, the best of which was written by Paul Mellon called Reflections in the Silver Spoon, which came out in the 90s. And it was his a reflection on his life, of course. He'd inherited money from his father, who founded Mellon Bank and was a secretary of the treasury, but a very heavy figure. And he had to find his own way. He went into analysis very early on when he was in his 40s or 50s, which was very unusual in, in that era, in mid-century, and then wrote this book. And what I gleaned from it, which was very influential to me, is that money only really buys you two things, time and privacy. And that was really one of the most profound things that I've ever read about money. And I always thought about that as a basis of how one, wants, one can lead, lead one's life in terms of the perspective of money and how it affects people. That is the most important thing that I've read. There are others as well. So I really didn't have the ability to discuss money with my moneyed peers. None of them really wanted to discuss the topic, except very lightly. And there were no peer groups. There are more now than there used to be. Why do you think that was? I just don't think it was the thing back then, Joe. I just, no one had really thought of the idea. And the thought of discussing money was just abhorrent either to maybe both old money families and new money families. I didn't see anyone who was interested in discussing it any, in any constructive way. And I really feel that this, on a one-on-one -on -one basis, talking on a peer-to-peer -peer basis with someone about how you perceived money when you were young, in my case, and dealt with it, and asking how they're dealing with it on many different levels is a very important task. I started the consultancy back in November, and I have three clients now. I'm adding a fourth 
next month. All of them have been personal recommendations. Who most have come through friends and people who are in the wealth management business. And I've just found it fascinating and really engaging. And basically, because I'm not taking the approach of a standard, say, a mental health provider, and I'm not building myself as such, this is very much more of a conversation than it is actual therapy, so to speak. It's talking about subjects freely, trying to provide advice and answers through a Socratic conversation about any topic. I have a list of four or five topics on my site, which I can start with, and I have a much larger list depending on where a client wants to go. And by the way, I'm not averse to jumping around from topic to topic in an hour-long session. I find it enjoyable when someone, I can tell when someone hits the wall on discussing something, and then we move on to something else. We can talk about relationships, either with friends or how to choose a long-term partner, eventually a spouse, how to be engaged in the world, either in work or in philanthropy, and the importance of work, and the, impor the importance of purpose, and the importance, I would say, of meaning, of having meaning in your life, which is a very key element of living. My first goal, being an inheritor, was to make sure that I didn't wrap myself around a tree in a Ferrari. I really was scared that I might succumb to temptation. And even though I'm a conservative person, it happens to everyone. And if you're given a leash, then you can run to the end of it. And in many cases, I've seen the children of peers and also my peers do so over time and lead, in some cases, rather dissolute or mediocre lives as a result of not having the pressure to work. And so that's a really fundamental problem. The amount of wealth that's being transferred now is just massive. It's bigger than at any time in history, both in this country and internationally. And I think the problems are the same. Different cultures deal with it in different ways. But I think the conversation, it seems to me, just from my own experience, is much more challenging here in the sense, when I say here in the United States, that American families don't have in many cases, a strong sense of dynasty and of protecting wealth and of instilling good values in many cases. Or, or if they do instill values, they may not instill a sense of an understanding of the origins of wealth, of the family wealth, how to manage it, and how to create a working relationship between generations for the next generation. So why do you think that is in the U.S.? I really don't know. I think people are love making money in this country, but I think they're very uncomfortable talking about it. I think they'd rather talk about cancer and erectile dysfunction and a whole bunch of other uncomfortable topics before they'll talk about money. It's extraordinary. Asking somebody what they make is really is a major taboo in any situation. On the flip side, though, that there is, yeah. I'm thinking, obviously, the Upper East Side is so hyper-competitive that everybody has their eye on everybody else and is, there's a constant status ladder. In New York in particular, you have to eat what you kill, and it's tough. When I grew up, we grew up around here in the 90s on Park Avenue, and the friends that I had, many of them had parents who were professionals, who were doctors and lawyers and 
Some of them were professors and they may not have lived on park, but they would live nearby. And so everybody found a place to live. And the city was expensive, but not completely unreasonable. And now I think it's changed. It's become much more polarized. And it is very challenging to make a livable living, so to speak, and live in New York City in most of the boroughs. It's quite challenging. It's really tough. And yet, there's so many young people who come here with the dream of the city of Oz, so to speak, which is the city of green, etc. And I think that it's, it's a never-ending dream. It's a very magical place, unlike any other city in the country. Other cities are challenging as well, but not as challenging as New York. So I understand that there's pressure, and I understand that the dynamics are very different here from other places. But getting back to young people, the reason that I'm so devoted to this and I feel that it's so interesting is that all of the stories are different. They have different dynamics. There are similarities, but each person has a different relationship either to their peers, to their parents, to their significant other, and to their siblings. So each story is very different and each one requires a custom conversation over time. What are the similarities that come to mind? The similarities are largely, in some cases, for younger people, a certain cluelessness about how to go about the process of conversation. Where do I start? What are the biggest problems? And what do I attack first? And so my philosophy is really to attack the subjects that are most troubling rather than the least troubling. And to start with conversations that are that are a little bit, not totally uncomfortable, but have some level of discomfort, and then introduce them and then back away from them and talk about easier subjects, and then come back to the more difficult tasks. That's the art form that I have developed, and I find that works very well. I know I'm pretty intuitive, and because I have relatively young children, they're young adults, I have a sense of what their generation is thinking about and trying to grapple with. In a changing world, in a very public world, where there's a lot of, the stimulation is enormous and much greater than it was, that private world that I grew up in when I was in my 20s doesn't exist anymore. Everything is very public and open and stimulating and at a certain level exhausting. It's exhausting for everyone, but it's especially exhausting if you're young and impressionable and if you're young and impressionable and trying to figure it out. So I found that once you start talking about these subjects with people, usually the conversation starts to flow, but sometimes it's a little difficult to get it started. I'm curious what the first meeting is like and how do you introduce these issues and how do you well, get people to open up? The first meeting is all about really establishing open communication by explaining my method and how I think the best way to have a conversation, which is really just to have an open chat about any aspect related to money. Not to say, These are the, this is my method and this is how this whole conversation is gonna progress. It's almost like going out to dinner with somebody and just talking about things. It's a little bit, it's freewheeling, but not entirely freewheeling. And I think that the best way to start a conversation is just to start it. As Lewis Carroll once said, it's always best to start at the beginning. So I really believe that. And we're establishing comfort and a rapport and a sense of trust in a very confidential zone with a stranger is important. And I have to begin to understand their world and their needs. And they also have to realize that what I've been through in as much as it relates to their specific situation. And then bits and pieces of my experience can be valuable 
in certain circumstances in comparison to what they're going through in a particular situation. Or I will draw from my knowledge of my peers who inherited money to say, this might be the perspective, not this is what you should do. It's less to be instructional than to say, this is the environment that you're dealing with. I'll give you an example. I was speaking to someone the other day who's thinking of engaging me, and this young lady was talking about, uh, about her grandfather's legacy and how he was very tough on his children, her mother in particular, and how that sort of affected her. And she was feeling guilty that he was a certain way and a very tough businessman or whatever. And I said, you really can't make money unless you have a thick skin or you're very lucky and you have, you stick it out, you stick out the long game. And you have to start from the standpoint that you didn't make the money. You shouldn't feel guilty about inheriting it. Your grandfather did it through investment, which, and he was a very successful investor. He did it in a very legitimate way. People understand numbers and money and things like that. And perhaps he was tough, meaning that he may just have been very disciplined and that his sense of discipline unfortunately carried over in his personality to his personal life. But that's the way he was. And the fact that he was that way isn't your problem and it's not your burden. And if he was being generous with you, it's because he wanted you to live a more comfortable life than he did. If he hadn't felt that way, he would not have given you an inheritance. He would have made you struggle. So if anything, he is actually very thoughtful about his family and especially about the next generation. And so you should be mindful of that. And there are ways to develop a sense of, especially if you had a good relationship with him, which it appears you did, a sense of gratitude and a sense of understanding his personality without being drawn in too far in trying to understand every aspect of how he lived his life. Everyone's life is complex and everyone has their burdens. One of the things about being an adult is that you have to recognize that your parents and your grandparents are people and that they're not flawless. And once you realize that, especially your parents, but also your grandparents came from X, did X, then you should be, you should feel very comfortable. And especially if the money was made in, a, in an honest fashion. If someone has, and I haven't encountered this, made money, I don't know, making nuclear bombs or hauling toxic sludge up the Hudson or whatever, something really nasty, maybe that's a different conversation. But I haven't had that. But most of the people that I've worked with have come from families where someone was clever and hardworking and stuck it out and made their fortune in a very legitimate way. So you mentioned the pressure of having to work. How do you recreate that pressure in an individual who doesn't have to work or perhaps maybe find purpose would be a better way to, to phrase that? I talked to someone about one of the things that I insist is that the only way to really deal with life with money is to divorce yourself from the money itself, emotionally, not necessarily financially, but to see yourself in one place and to see your money in another and to try to separate them. You need to run your wealth. Your wealth shouldn't be running you. And that is partly lifestyle, certain lifestyle decisions, but also creating an environment where for your own self-protection, if not for your own personal interests, ideally, you create a world where you, where you have to get up in the morning and you have to go to work. 
it doesn't matter what you do. And better that you would go to a second, to a, a different physical place than to do things at home, although that seems to be changing broadly with telecommuting now. I'm not sure how many companies function with people working remotely. They seem to function reasonably well. But I think if you're an individual doing that, it's even more challenging because you don't, you really need peer interaction. You, ha you should go to an office or a space where there are other people. And even though I'm working on my own now, I tend to go to another space to even just to read emails and to think about things and come into contact with other people and fall into conversation very casually, whether it's somebody else's office or a cafe or something else. I think it's very, I think it's essential. One of the topics you bring up is managing the inevitable pressures of others seeking to influence you, often based on assumed knowledge about your inherited wealth. How do you handle that conversation? How do you handle those interactions? I think you have to really know your friends and at times have that open conversation, especially if you feel someone's trying to take advantage of you financially. I was very guarded about, very few people actually approached me for borrowing money. And maybe because I was very good at putting up a wall that I didn't even indicate to anyone that was even remotely a conversation. I did loan money to a friend of mine in college for whom a small amount of money made all of the difference in the world. And I approached him, he didn't approach me. And the reason I did it is that I, he was a good friend of mine and I knew that creating a situation where he would be able to study and enjoy himself and not have the penury of, of working as hard as he did to just to pay for books would be a life-changing event for him. And in that case, very thoughtfully, I loaned him a reasonable amount of money with the understanding that he would pay me back in five or 10 years, which he did. And over time, I got a check every six months, and it was based on a very good judgment. Had he not paid me back, I still would have, because I could afford to, feel that I had done the right thing to improve his life. And that the onus of not paying me back would have been on him, not on me for having made a mistake. I would not have looked at it as a mistake. But that was a very, this very specific and unusual circumstance. And I think generally you can avoid conflict by simply living your life, being associated with people who know of your background, being very quiet about your good fortune, not rubbing it in anyone's nose, and discussing it openly if someone approaches you about the subject in a good way, in a polite way, and otherwise not putting yourself in a position where you have to quote unquote buy your friendships. I'm speaking to a client about her difficulty with going out with a group of friends and not feeling at every moment that she, because she's the one with the money, should be picking up the check. She's really struggling with that and whether her friends perceive her as a piggy bank rather than a true friend. And I said, there's only one way to find out. And if you don't want to go to an expensive club, then you shouldn't bring your friends. Or if you do, you should go, to, go with people who can afford it. And then there's no question as to whether the check is to be split or not. So we're having this philosophical conversation. But there is also a tendency to, that you'll end up isolated. You'll just end up in the bubble. I think you have to take that risk, Joe. Yeah. I was very willing to be, to risk that sense of isolation and to just live my life comfortably at times without the dialogue, internal or external, of whether I should hang out with people that 
perceived me in a certain way. I think there was always a struggle for people. When I had my first job at IBM, a friend of mine who was, and I made friends easily there because I enjoyed what I did, even though we were from different backgrounds. One of the managers there said to one of my friends, why does he even come into work every day? Which I found just, it was, I found it offensive and shocking, but at the end of the day, I found it funny that they were, that they were so profoundly ignorant of anyone of means having work, a work ethic that I just laughed it off. But I have to say it did resonate and it was, I found it a little bit shocking that they would even have said it out loud to someone that they knew was close to me as if that should get back to me. Circle back a little bit to the separation, which I think is interesting. You also say money and your personal identity. How do you spiritually separate yourself from your money while using it for your own purposes? I guess it's a question about not getting confused and not making the money your identity. I think you have to separate yourself in the following manner. You have to determine what's really important to you by spending money, not necessarily at a rapid clip, but a reasonably, but at a higher pace than the average person who doesn't have funds. And to then really analyze shortly after a purchase or an experience, what really means something to you and what enriches you. If you buy fewer things of great quality and those things resonate, then that's fine. Then you really have taken, you've taken joy in the spending of money and the enjoyment of money. If you just spend wildly because you can, that's not going to bring you joy. And the acquisition certainly of too many possessions is definitely not going to bring most people joy. The average person in this country has, if you fall below a poverty level in this country, the stress level goes up dramatically. I think the number is 75 or 80,000 on average for a family of four around the country as an income, as a family, and as being falling into sort of a poverty point of stress, of having to make real choices between food and shelter, heat, things like that, transportation. The remarkable thing is that once you get above that stress point, the average happiness quotient between someone who is firmly in, let's say, the lower middle class or above, and someone who is very wealthy, is not that great. Yes, if you have a bit more money, there's a chance that you'll have greater comfort and a certain level of happiness. But it's actually the differential between just above survival and having a lot of money is not that, is not that great, which I found when I read it was just so profound. So with that in mind, with that as a benchmark, for what money provides, you have to look very carefully at what you do. You don't have to go around pinching pennies deliberately, but it's not the worst thing. Thrift is not a sin. I think it's looked upon as a sin these days by some people. I think it's a great thing to do, and people took great pride in their thrift 50 or 100 or 200 years ago, that things were, it was hard to acquire things, it was hard to make money, and there were so many things in life that happened there were more recessions and depressions and changes in the economy that could profoundly change someone's life in a minute that people saved and they saved for a rainy day, literally, because they needed to have the funds to, to survive. And I don't think that philosophy, even though it doesn't necessarily affect you directly, is a bad way to live, is to be very cautious about how you spend money and also your personal experiences. Have you met Anyone in all of your years in New York who has done money well? I think that uh, I've met a number of people who've done it well. 
who are from great means but have lived well under their, within their means. A number of friends, including some who were self-made, who realize while they live very comfortably that they have reached the, they've reached the limit of what their wealth can provide them on a daily basis in terms of their own house. Including a friend of mine I went to college with who, who started with nothing and is now extremely wealthy. But I would say that he lives at 10% of where he could if he were really engaged in having fun. And he has plenty of fun, but he's just very conscious of not, A, for, for his, because of his peer group, and he wants to stay close to his own friends, and he's also very generous to them in a good way. But he really, having come from nothing, recognizes exactly what it is that makes him happy. And he has no desire to go to a level which would be equivalent to the people of his economic status and in terms of the way they live at a very high level. I think it's quite admirable and profound, and I really admire him for that. You mentioned that you had read the book, I don't know if it was the recent book on the Harvard Grant study, which studied people over the course of their lives. What did you learn from the Grant study? I learned from the Grant study, from the book, the last book, not the most recent one, Aging, that spending time with your family and your friends, having social interactions, having hobbies, and having things that were very simple and enjoyable, whether it's books or music or sports, things that we know are good for us but don't do enough of, are the things that really enrich your life, especially social interactions and friendships. And I see in many wealthy people, especially as they age, a greater sense of isolation, even in people who are physically fit, that they reach a point where they feel like having interaction with friends or social engagements is an effort and that they don't need it anymore and that they're fine being by themselves. And the ones who do that tend to dig themselves into a whole emotionally. Sadly, I witnessed my father becoming more and more isolated as he got old. And I'm not sure what it was because he was still pretty f fit physically, but he wasn't engaged. He wasn't a great listener. And I think to be someone's friend or to interact with people socially, even if at times you don't want to listen to somebody because you think you're boring or you don't disagree with them, that you have to become a good listener. Because you're always, when you do that, when you push yourself to do that, especially in situations where you don't want to, you always end up learning something by not speaking. And that's actually a lesson that took me a long time to learn, probably well into my 40s and 50s, to be able to listen to people. And I think that's why my work is so enjoyable now, because I actually really do. I'd rather hear what somebody else has to say, because I already know what I'm thinking. And at some point, I can obviously contribute to a conversation, but I'd rather hear someone else's, the full breadth of someone else's thought before I say anything. We've been talking today with Chip Fisher. Chip, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.